I think it was uh, probably pretty much my only celebrity sighting ever. Um, at least the, the most uh, significant, that's for sure. It was 1991, so uh, 25 years ago. And some friends and I were living uh, for a few months in a really tiny little town of about 4,500 people in Schladming, Austria, in the Austrian Alps. Uh, we were there for a few months going to, um, to a Bible school. And uh, we had only been there for a couple of weeks and, and kind of spending Saturdays in this, in this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere. It's about halfway between Schla uh, Salzburg and Vienna. Uh, it, it's just, there was absolutely nothing to do. And I remember a group of us were wandering around the town uh, that Saturday trying to figure out sort of the lay of the land and, and trying to figure out what we were going to do for the afternoon. And we came around the corner, and all of a sudden, one of the, the folks that we were with in the group looks up across the street, and there, sitting in the cafe, having a cup of coffee, is Arnold Schwarzenegger, which, like, I get it, like, he's Austrian, and so maybe it's not that huge a surprise. You're in, you're in a tiny little town of 4,500 people in the middle of absolutely nowhere, and you come around the corner, and there, Arnold Schwarzenegger is sitting right there. It was, it was the most incredible thing. The whole group of us got around, and we were like, hey, we, we need to get some pictures with him, get some autographs, or they talk to him, or whatever. But we kind of felt shy about the whole group. There's probably seven or eight of us sending the whole group over to talk to him. So uh, we picked a couple of folks from the group. I think, I, I can't remember the criteria that we used, but it was, you know, somehow the guy and the girl that we felt maybe would have the most appeal, the, the ones that would be the most likely to get him to come over and talk to us. And we sent them over, and then all of the rest of us stood on the other side of the street and kind of watched them cross over the street and approach the table and, and talk to Arnold and, and whoever he was sitting with, and they had this brief conversation, and then they came back and uh, they shook their heads. They said, nope, he's, he's not going to come and and talk to us. We found out later that what had happened was uh, they had walked across the street and having you know, approached the table, they got all kind of flustered and nervous. And they didn't really know what to say to Arnold Schwarzenegger. And as they approached, they were all kind of talking in German around the table. So, so they, they got to the table. The guy looks at them and he says, so uh, do you speak English? <laughs> to Arnold Schwarzenegger, like how many of his movies have you seen? We, um, we called him half Watt for the rest of our time at Bible school. Felt maybe he didn't, he wasn't. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it was just kind of this neat experience, right? We, we sort of love celebrity sightings. Our culture is kind of obsessed with celebrity, whatever. But we love celebrity sightings because it's, it's this moment of recognizing somebody for who they really are, right? The moment of, of seeing somebody uh, of some greatness or seeing somebody for who they really are, oftentimes they're in disguise, right? So you're seeing somebody for who they are when everybody else has missed it. That's kind of what this series is all about. We're taking a tour through Matthew chapter 14, 15, 16, and we're look, asking ourselves a question, who is Jesus? Kind of examining these stories that are being told by Matthew about the life of Jesus, and in each instance, kind of taking a step back and looking at the Jesus that Matthew presents to us to get a feel for who Jesus really is. Right, so a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 together, and we realized that Matthew presents Jesus as 
the most significant religious figure who's ever lived. The one who has the power, the ability to set us free from the sin and the brokenness that swirls inside of us and the sin and the brokenness that swirls around us, who, who, who can make us holy and whole, who can make it so that our lives are in increasing ways devoted to the way of Jesus, which is the way of love, loving God and loving ourselves and loving each other and loving the world. He can make us holy and he can make us whole. He bring healing into the brokenness of our lives. Jesus is the one who takes people who are far from God and far from each other and brings them together in open, vulnerable, loving community with each other and with God so that they celebrate the goodness and joy and the beauty of being in a relationship with God together as a community both now and for all of eternity. That's who Jesus is. Last week, Matthew told us a story about Jesus walking on the water in the midst of the storm. We saw that Jesus is God with us. The presence of God in our midst, in the middle of whatever it is that you're going through right now. Not just being present to us, but God who has the power and authority to trample the waves, the chaos, the darkness, the turmoil of your lives, just to walk all over it. And even more than that, who has the power and authority to empower you and me to have the strength and the courage and the confidence in faith to walk all over the darkness and chaos that's swirling around us in our lives. That's who Jesus is. Well, this morning we're picking up the story in Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse uh, 21. And it says there, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman came from that vicinity, or a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon possessed and suffering terribly. The story begins, as all of these stories appear to begin, with Jesus leaving the place where he was and going to a different place to try and finally be alone, try and get some solitude from everybody else. The, the gospel of Mark makes it a lot clearer. It says that Jesus left uh, the place. So, uh, well, I should say first, he, he, Jesus leaves where he is and he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Um, I put this map up a couple weeks ago. We'll put it back up on the screen now. But um, most of Jesus' public life, he lives, you can see it's in this green region in the north called Galilee. That's where Jesus lives. And and right at that dot that says Tiberius, right around there, that's sort of Jesus' home in that area. And Jesus lives almost entire public life in that place. If it, whenever he says to his disciples, get in the boat and go to the other side, he's sending them across. You can see a tan space called the Decapolis. They kind of get to the shore on the other side. But this is across that lake there. This is where they go back and forth. But most of Jesus' life is there. Jesus says, that's it. He says, I've had enough. There's too many crowds. I'm out of here. He actually leaves the country altogether. And you can see where he ends up northwest of Galilee. there on the shore of the, of the Mediterranean Sea, that town called Tyre. Completely outside of Israel. That's where Jesus goes to relax. And in the Gospel of Mark, he says that Jesus went into a home. He kind of got himself a room in a bed and breakfast. Because he didn't want anyone to know that he was there. Right? Jesus is kind of hiding out. He's left the country so, he, so he's somewhere where nobody will recognize him. 
right? Like Arnold Schwarzenegger hiding out in Schladming, Austria. Not that people wouldn't recognize him, but they just, people would leave him alone. And he's, he's walking through the town because he doesn't want to get recognized. He's got the hat pulled low and the sunglasses on and whatever. And as he walks past this one house, this woman sees him going by. A local woman to that area sees him going by and she recognizes him instantly. And she comes flying out of her house down the front walk and she is shrieking and she is screaming for Jesus' attention. She is she's absolutely in hysterics, completely desperate. She's crying out to him, Lord, have mercy on me. The, that, actually, that word shrieking or the word, uh, what does it say? She's crying out. In, in Greek, the word is shrieking. And I looked up in the Greek dictionary and it's, it actually says, uh, to make a, a cry out with a loud voice with the possible implication of an irritating noise, right? Like, it's the kind of word that you use to describe what a rooster does, right? It's the same word, actually, that uh, Matthew used to describe what the disciples did when they thought that Jesus was a ghost in the story last week. Just absolute, full-on, emotional panic, coming unglued, freaking out, shrieking at the top of her voice, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, you know, um, understand my situation, have compassion on what it is that I'm going through. Understand my, my life and let it break your heart to the point where you do something about it because she says, my daughter is suffering terribly. Well, now the whole picture makes sense. Right? Because anybody who has kids or nieces and nephews that they're close to or, or what have you, there is not a feeling in this world that is more terrible more desperate, more agonizing than watching your child suffer. And she's, she's desperate for Jesus to intervene in the life of her daughter. And so she cries out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. It's an interesting way to address Jesus as the son of David. On the one hand, uh, Jesus Father's name wasn't even David. Um, Christians throughout history have confessed that Jesus, like we talked about last week, is God in human form. He is God come to earth to join human history in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And Christians have always confessed that, that he was born to a virgin named Mary who uh, was conceived, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God at work in her. Jesus had no earthly father. The man who raised her was Mary's husband, a guy by the name of Joseph, but he wasn't the son of, of David. Why does she call him the son of David? Who's David? Well, David, as it turns out, is a person who lived a thousand years before Jesus and was Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather, according to Matthew. 28 generations back is his grandfather David, and it just so happens that Jesus' great, 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 I won't do that again. Jesus' great grandfather times 26 happened to be the most celebrated king in all of the history of Israel. The king who actually 
led Israel into the into its golden age of its existence. King David was the most revered and celebrated king that Israel ever had. So why does she call him? And he's Jesus is descendant of this king. So uh, through his mother. So why does why does she call him the son of David? You see, at that time, in first century Israel, the Jews were anticipating, many of them, the Messiah. They were waiting for the appearance of the Messiah who was to be a king of the Jews. The Messiah, that word simply means the anointed one, the anointed one who is the king, right? The, the Messiah was come, and he was going to be the king, and what the Jews expected was that when the Messiah showed up, he would become the king of all of Israel, and then he would lead Israel through this revival back to a second golden age that was greater than the golden age that they had under King David. He would lead them into this greater golden age where they would become the sole superpower in the world and he and Jesus or the Messiah would become not only the king of Israel, but he would become the king of the entire human race. He would become sovereign over everything in the world, visible and invisible. He would rule the world. This uh, belief was known widely in the ancient world. In fact, there's a Roman historian by the name of Suetonius who lives right around the same time as Jesus, a little bit after. He's writing a book about the lives of the Caesars in 120 uh, AD or CE. And this is what he writes in the book. He says, there had spread all over the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea, from Israel, to rule the world. Suetonius says, everybody knows this. Everybody knows that the Jews are living with this expectation that a king is going to emerge from their midst and this king is going to become triumphant, not only in Israel, but is going to become the one who rules the entire world. Well, of course, what the Jews believe comes out of their scriptures, out of a passage like Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It's a passage we read every year at Christmas. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne, he will reign like David did, and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This was the root, one of the passages that became the root of this belief in the Messiah that God was going to send a king to rule over Israel, to sit on David's throne and the government, not just of Israel, but of the entire human race, of all of human history would rest on his shoulders and he would rule the world with the, the wisdom of God. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor. He'll rule the world with the power of God. He'll be called the Mighty God. He will be the protector and the provider of God's people, the Everlasting Father, and he will usher in an era of everlasting peace, of wholeness, of abundance, of healing, of 
flourishing, of human flourishing, of the world being finally the place that God had always imagined it would be, humanity becoming the people, the the species, the race that God always dreamed that we would be, the world would finally become the kind of place you would expect the world to be if the God who reveals himself in Jesus were allowed to be in charge. This woman looks at Jesus and this is what she's confessing to him. Lord, which is another title for king. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. She's saying, you're the one. You're the one that God has sent into the world to be sovereign over everything. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Um, In our era... When you ask people most often to to tell you, what's the gospel? What's the good news? Most people who grew up in the church would say, well, the good news is this. You're a sinner and been separated from God. But Jesus has come and died on the cross and was raised from the dead so you could be forgiven of your sin and you could spend eternity with God in heaven. And I'm going to tell you, that's not the good news. Those are all true statements. And that's part of the good news. But that is by far not how the Bible describes the good news. The good news about Jesus in the Bible is Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is the king that God has sent into the world. That because of his death and his resurrection, Jesus ascends to heaven. And now he sits on the throne, not of Israel, but he sits on the throne of the entire universe. That Jesus is the one who is guiding and shaping human affairs in our world. Jesus, not the political process, not science and technology, not the free market economy, not the educational process. Those are not the primary shaping factors of, of where our world is going. It is Jesus who is guiding the course of human history from the throne in heaven. Jesus is the one who is sovereign over everything you see and everything you don't see Jesus is the king of the entire world that is the good news because of his death and resurrection Jesus is sovereign over everything and in the sovereignty of Jesus he is ruling the world with the wisdom of God he is ruling the world with the power of God he is the protector and the provider of the people of God and he is ushering in under his authority and power he is ushering in an era of everlasting peace and healing and fullness and abundance and human flourishing and love. That's the good news, that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, he is Lord, which is a funny bit of news if you actually just watch the real news. Because it doesn't feel all the time like Jesus is in charge when you watch the news. It doesn't feel like the world is becoming the kind of place that God always wanted it to be when you watch the news. With rise of global terrorism, the uh, collapse of these political regimes that are creating the, the refugee crisis, the, the planet's falling apart, the economy is collapsing. Just It doesn't feel like Jesus is in charge. When, when you think about your life, my life, the lives of those in our community. 
It doesn't always feel like Jesus is in charge. Every week in our community, someone gets a diagnosis. Someone battles mental illness. Somebody fights addiction. Every week in our community, somebody finds themselves in a relationship that's blowing up. Somebody lies awake at night wondering how they're going to feed the people that they love. Someone stares down the barrel of uncertain circumstances every week in our community. And it's why Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The early church prayed that prayer three times a day. God, through Jesus your king, your kingdom come on earth just as it is in heaven. God, would you make more of our world, would you make more of my life be the way that it would be if you were allowed to be in charge, if Jesus was allowed to be sovereign over what happens in my life and govern my life with the wisdom of God and the power of God being the the protector and the provider of the people of God to usher in an era of peace and healing and fullness, forgiveness, wholeness, abundance, and, and love. God, would you make more of my life look the way life would look if you were allowed to be in charge. That's what this woman is doing. She's coming out, accosting Jesus in full-on hysterics, confessing her faith and saying, Lord, son of David, you are the king who's come to be sovereign over everything. Now, exercise your sovereignty in the life of my daughter. Defeat the powers of darkness and chaos that are swirling around inside of her. Exercise your wisdom and your power. Protect her and provide for her and usher her into a life that is filled with peace. Do what it is that you do as the king over everything. And Jesus responds to this woman just as he does over and over again in the stories that we've read in the book of Matthew. Verse 23, it says, uh, Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, you know, they're going to encourage him. No, send her away. Uh, She keeps crying out after us. In verse 24, it says, he answered. And in the Greek, it's not translated, but said he rolled his eyes. And said to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. This incredibly bizarre response from Jesus. She, she comes flying out of her house. She confronts him, accosts him, is freaking out in a panic, begging him to do what he's done for so many other people throughout the, the gospel of Matthew and to heal her daughter whose life is in the grip of evil. And he actually doesn't even answer her. Not a word. Stone cold silence, that's what she gets in response to her prayer. In fact, if you read the text carefully, he doesn't even stop walking, right? He's, he's walking along and she's freaking out. He doesn't even slow down. He's just on his way. The disciples say to him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. She is crying out after them. They're walking away and she's continuing to yell at them and they kind of come to Jesus and say, listen, can you, uh, can you talk to her because... That's getting irritating. And so Jesus turns to her and says, listen, um, I appreciate the faith, but uh, I actually, my main focus, to be honest, um, is the people of Israel and not uh, you. 
I wonder whether there's anybody in our community who's ever felt that. Cried out to God in prayer. You're in hysterics. You're in a panic. You're desperate. You're begging God to exercise his sovereignty in your life. To start, to start uh, being sovereign in your life with the wisdom of God and the power of God to be the protector and provider for you, to usher in an air of peace. You're, you're crying out to God, have mercy on me, and what you get in response is stone-cold silence from heaven. It doesn't even seem like God has stopped walking. He just, he just ignores you and keeps on going about his business. You're crying out, and you're getting nothing. Well, this woman has a hard time taking no for an answer. Verse 25 says Jesus has just sent her away. But it says she came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. I wonder how firm I should be reading that. Lord, help me. Right? Like she lays down the law. And he replies to her, you know, it's not right to take the children's bread and um, toss it to the dogs. She runs after him, gets in front of him, stops him from walking, kneels down in front of him. Actually, the text, probably what she did was lay herself right out on the ground in front of him, worships it, like sort of lays herself right out and says, Lord, help me. You've got to help me. You cannot just walk away from me. And he says, yeah, just doesn't feel right to take the bread that's for the children, the Israelites, and toss it to a dog like you. The word dog is actually as derogatory as it sounds. It's, um, it was a derogatory term that the Jews would use to talk about the Gentiles. Honestly, it's an ethnic slur is what it is. I had a friend uh, uh, who's black Ugandan. And uh, he was telling me once when he was living in Uganda that he had taken a vacation to South Africa under the regime of apartheid. And, and he was eating dinner, one of his last days there, and he was in this restaurant in no man's land, which meant it was a mixed race restaurant, whites and blacks could both eat there, which meant that he was terrified the entire time, because in South Africa, if a, if a black man and a white man under apartheid get into a fight with each other, uh, the black man is to blame, and he goes to jail. That's how it worked. Actually, you watch the news these days, and you wonder how much has changed, hashtag Black Lives Matter. But he was eating at this restaurant. He said he was so scared. He just wanted to get out. He was finished his meal. It was a plate of chicken. And he said he, he was just trying so hard to mind his own business that he sat there over his plate. And he kind of grabbed a bone off of his plate. And he was picking the last little bit of the meat, waiting for the server to come with his bill. And as he was picking on the bone, uh, uh, felt a tap on the shoulder. And he turned. And there was a white guy sitting at the next table. I said to him, hey, buddy. You know what dogs eat? And he turned back to the table and he and his buddies had a big laugh. And Ed said he wasn't even really listening. He was just kind of, yeah, 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 whatever. And he, you know, walked out of the restaurant and he said three weeks later, he was back in Uganda. He was walking down the street thinking about this moment. I said, all of a sudden the light bulb went on. He was like, wait a minute. He insulted me. <laughs> it's that offensive, what Jesus says to her. It's just not right for me to take the bread, the good stuff, the food, what, I was, what I've been sent by God to bring, it's just not right for me to take what by rights belongs to the Jews and to give it to a dog like you. Verse 27, yes it is, Lord, she said. 
Actually, it just says, yes, Lord, in the text. And I think she's actually agreeing with them. I think she's saying, you know what, you're right. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from under the master's table. She says, listen, I'm not asking you to take something away from anybody. All I'm asking is that you'd give me some of the scraps. And at that point, I think a big smile probably crosses Jesus' face. The whole thing has been a test of her faith. And Jesus says to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Jesus, with her confession, her calling her the son of him, the son of David, <coughs> acknowledging that he is the king who's come into the world to rule with the wisdom and power of God to be the protector and provider of God's people to bring peace and healing and wholeness into people's lives. She's confessed, I know that's who you are and I'm begging you to do this for my daughter and Jesus wants to push her faith. He wants to see how deep this faith goes. He wants to see how persistent she's gonna be and this is a woman who does not give up. There's a little verse in the Gospel of Luke that says that Jesus wants us to always pray and to never give up. This is this woman's moment. And this is our invitation. As the band comes back to the stage, uh, I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what's going on in your life or maybe even more particular to the story. I don't know what's going on in the life of somebody that you care about deeply. But I do know this, that Jesus is the king. Jesus is sovereign over everything in the entire universe, everything that you can see and everything that you don't see. And Jesus is ruling over all of human history in the wisdom and power of God as the protector and the provider of God's people, the one who has committed himself to ushering in an era of peace and healing and hope in your life. And he's inviting you, no matter who you are, and no matter what you've done, he is inviting you to be somebody who throws yourself at his feet and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Maybe some of you for the first time in your own life saying, I am a sinner, have mercy on me and forgive me. Maybe there's something going on in the life of someone you love and you're, and you're just, he's waiting for you to throw yourself at his feet and say, have mercy on them. Bring peace and healing and hope and abundance. I know you can. I know that's why you came. And to do it with persistence and to do it with determination to always pray and to never give up. That's what Jesus is inviting us to do because that's who Jesus is. The one who's come into the world to be sovereign over everything and to bring peace to his people. Let's pray right now that he unleashes that peace in whatever it is that's going on in our lives and in the lives of those that we, he love, we love. Let's pray together. Father, so often we feel like our lives are at the mercy of forces beyond our control, and they are. We know that they are. But we come this morning as people confessing that you were the king.
that you're sovereign over everything. Which doesn't mean everything happens the way you want it to, it just means that you have the power and the wisdom and the authority to affect every, everything and anything that happens in our world. Father, in the situations represented in this room right now, would your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.